have you ever been really, really hungry? You're listening to Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast. I'm Alex. I'm Carmela. And now let's tuck in to the gruesome history of this ultimate taboo. Welcome to episode 11 on the Bay of Pigs. Would you like to hear about the Bay of Pigs? As in the Bay of Pigs invasion from We Didn't Start the Fire? The very same. Well, other than Long Pig, I did not know this connection between Bay of Pigs and survival cannibalism, so let's go. How's your Cold War history? Not bad. I can muddle my way through the Cold War. Mine is GCSE history level. So with this in mind... Let's have a quick rundown of the political context. <laughs> Geopolitical story time with Carmela. Let's go. Let's start with World War II. That's a pretty solid fitting. We know what that is. Was it a big war? It was. The US and Britain, temporary allies with the USSR. They all had the common goal of stopping Nazi Germany. They're all mates. Until Germany surrenders in 1945. Friendship with USSR ended. Yeah. The USSR installs communist governments across Eastern Europe, which terrifies the US and Britain, because what if it comes into Western Europe? And then what if it gets to us? Is it Red Terror? Is that what they call it? That's the one. Cue the formation of NATO. Cue the space race. The nuclear arms race. Berlin Wall. Cold War is in session. Over to Cuba. In 1950, the country is led by President Carlos Prio Sicaris, and a young man called Fidel Castro is graduating from law school. Castro joins the Orthodox Cuban People's Party, which is a left-wing populist political party, and becomes their candidate for a seat in the House of Representatives in the June 1952 elections. However, the elections do not happen, because in March that year, former president Fulgencio Batista stages a military coup and overthrows Prio's government. Oh, I do love a democracy. Batista installs a dictatorship. <laughs> oh, I do love a democracy. <laughs> Batista is anti-communist and pro-American, so US President Eisenhower is pretty chill with this. Crucially, Batista allows the US corporations to maintain their monopoly on Cuba's sugar plantations, cattle ranches, mines and utilities. That'll do it. Yep. We're anti-communism, but we're also pro-America. Which of these is more important? Cast your votes now. Well, surely they're the same thing. Unlike Eisenhower, Castro is not chill with Batista. He leads an attempt to overthrow Batista's dictatorship unsuccessfully in 1953, gets imprisoned, and is later granted political amnesty in Mexico. There, he founds the 26th of July movement, who finally managed to defeat Batista's government in December 1958 and install Castro in power the following year. I promise all of this is relevant. 
Castro establishes the first communist state in the Western Hemisphere. Oh, I don't think America's going to like that. Castro takes immediate steps to limit America's influence in Cuba, nationalising their industries such as sugar and mining. One of his campaign slogans is Cuba si Yankees no. With my Duolingo Spanish. Mm. Tell me what that means, Alex. Cuba, yes. Yankees, no. I would say that that's probably what it means. I have been studying for many, many hours under the green owl to be able to bring <laughs> you that information. <laughs> to prevent the collapse of Cuba's economy without those uh, sugar exports to America, Castro establishes a diplomatic relationship with the USSR, who agree to buy all the sugar off them. Well, they would, wouldn't they? It's sort of their thing, spreading communism and pissing off America. What's doubly concerning to the states is Castro's call to other Latin American governments to act with more autonomy. There's now a distinct threat that Soviet influence and communism could spread throughout the entirety of Latin America. And remember how terrified the US was when it was just Western Europe that that was possible for. Right on their very doorstep. And possibly in their own country. <gasps> Nimbyism at play there. Eisenhower is predictably bricking it. <laughs> Technical term. <laughs> During Castro's leadership, the CIA cook up hundreds of plots to assassinate him. Hundreds of pots? <laughs> plots. Like they're making a lot of stew. Some of these uh, pots or plots, if you will. I can't help it. I'm waiting for the cannibalism. Cartoonishly ludicrous. Here are some of the more well-known ones. An exploding cigar. A poisoned diving suit. <laughs> An exploding seashell, just in case the diving suit doesn't get to him first. <laughs> Adding poison pills to his face cream. <laughs> Alternatively, there are some non-lethal plots that involve just embarrassing him out of credibility, such as sprinkling thallium salt on his shoes so that his iconic beard will fall out. <laughs> or spraying an aerosol of LSD on him during a live television broadcast. <laughs> In 1975, the US Senate Church Commission revealed details of some of these plots, admitting in their report that some of them, quote, strain the imagination. <laughs> I want to see all of them happening at the same time. I just feel like the CIA had read too much James Bond at this point in time. Apparently Kennedy was a big fan. This is Eisenhower, but Kennedy comes up later, so yeah. See, what that made me think of was the idea of the gay bomb. Mm, what's this? It was an idea by the US Department of Defence, a theoretical chemical weapon to create something that would disrupt enemy morale and dehabilitate them, but not kill them. Okay. So they were going to release a pheromone on their enemy <laughs> to turn them gay. <laughs> the gay bomb, I quote, contained a chemical that would cause enemy soldiers to become gay and have their units break down because all their soldiers became irresistibly attractive to one another. <laughs> I mean, surprisingly enough, the gay bomb was not built. But scientists did suggest adding in 
aphrodisiacs and nice scents. <laughs> Just a nice perfume. To um, make the gay bomb more effective. Yeah, enhance the mood. So that's what I thought they were going to try and do to Fidel Castro. Oh, you... you've got to love the Americans. You'd think it was a parody. <laughs> People are wild. It's almost like, surely it's just easier just to kill them, right? Anyway. No, we must do something worse. We must make them gay. <laughs> In any case. <laughs> Sorry, I know you want to talk about the Bay of Pigs. But... <laughs> no. But we are now a gay bomb podcast. Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro. None of these plots against him worked. Shame. He himself once remarked, if surviving assassination attempts were an Olympic event, I would win the gold medal. Modest too. It does make it sound like he has, by his own prowess, survived the attempts, whereas most of it is based on these ridiculous, like I said, cartoonish things where they poison the diving suit but he decides not to go diving that day they put the exploding seashell but he dives at a different dive site like it's not him outwitting the cia it's just like a bugs bunny kind of i'd also like to think that if i saw and heard a ticking seashell attached to a stick of dynamite (laughs) i also wouldn't pick it up (laughs) in march 1960 Eisenhower and the CIA cooked up a less ridiculous plan to overthrow Castro. But everything else has been so sensible. Ten former Cuban military officers were recruited to a secret training facility on Usepa Island, just off Florida's west coast, near Fort Myers. They were shortly joined by 60 more exiles, and here they would prepare to serve as officers in a D-Day-style invasion, backed up by strikes from the US Air Force. Their aim was to occupy the landing zone and resist for enough time to establish a rival government by exiled leaders that would be supported by the US, of course. Do you know, listening to this objectively, it is so wild that the US is just like, I don't like that government. We're going to put a new one in. It's not your country. Yeah, and uh, we don't like this dictator because unlike the last dictator, (laughs) they don't like us. Yeah. It was believed that anti-Castro revolutionaries within Cuba would take this invasion as a sign to rise up and support the invading force. José Miro Cardona, the leader of the Cuban Revolutionary Council, an exile committee in the States, was poised to take over the presidency of Cuba if the invasion succeeded. This is where it gets a bit complicated, because to begin with, Fidel Castro was the revolutionary. The counter, 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 pro-anti-revolutionaries. It's a coup upon a coup upon a coup. Around 1,500 exiles in total were trained up in assault landing and guerrilla warfare, moving from Isepa to the mountains in Guatemala as their numbers grew. They named themselves Brigade 2506 after the identifying number of Carlos Rodriguez Santana, who died during a training accident in September 1960. So the first member of their brigade to die, they named themselves after him. It's kind of sweet. Yeah. Johnny Lopez de la Cruz is the current president of the Association of Veterans of the 2506 Brigade. Speaking to the BBC in 2021, he explained his reason for joining. In the beginning, I supported Castro. He never said he was a communist. 
but soon afterwards people started to be executed. We would distribute pamphlets and write down with Fidel on walls, but then two members of my group were arrested. People close to me told me that I was next, so I went with three friends to Havana and flew out to Miami with fake papers. When I arrived in the US in 1960, I already knew that other exiles were being trained by the CIA in Guatemala to invade Cuba. I made my way over there a few days later. He is not messing about. No. One wonders how he knew that exiles were being trained by the CIA in Guatemala and makes you think that maybe it wasn't as secret as they hoped. <laughs> right? A bit of an open secret. In fact, Cuban intelligence seemed to know of the existence of this training camp as early as October 1960. So they kind of expected that something was coming. Those unexpected deliveries of ticking cakes have stopped arriving, <laughs> signed from the CIA. They must be up to something. <laughs> Prior to the invasion being launched, one little change. US President. Ah, that thing. John F. Kennedy was inaugurated on the 20th of January 1961 and was very soon after briefed on the CIA's invasion plan. That must be a fun conversation to have when you uh, step into the presidency. Eisenhower hasn't quite finished this job, so this is what we're going to do. So the first one is, right, here are the keys. The second one, here's the truth about aliens. Yeah. And then, oh, by the way, we're about to go to war in a half an hour? <laughs> exactly. Actually, I would say three months is the time scale he has here. The invasion is planned for April that year. Oh, that's plenty of time. So, what does Kennedy make of this? His foreign policy stance was that democracies need to be uncompromisingly harsh with aggressive dictatorships. The pre-World War II policies of appeasement with Hitler hadn't worked, obviously. Spoilers. Spoilers. And Kennedy, he's not up for that. He's also taken a strong stand against Castro in his presidential campaign, pledging to take action to overthrow him, unlike his opposition candidate Nixon. Well, that's convenient for him. So going along with the CIA's plan is a way of delivering on this promise, and ultimately he decides to greenlight it. That would have been awkward if he hadn't, wouldn't yeah. it? They'd have yeah. done all this work. <laughs> However, he does want to make a few changes. Put his own spin on it. Yeah. To avoid aggravating the USSR... America's role in the operation should be as concealed as possible. From the outside, Kennedy wants it to look like an unbacked attempt initiated by the Cuban exiles themselves. But then, how is that a democracy being forthright in the face of dictatorship? Yeah, it's a democracy being sneaky. Naughty democracy. Speaking to his confidant Clark Clifford in April 1961, so this is post-invasion now, can we have this in a Kennedy voice, please? Kennedy said, Let me tell you something. I have had two full days of hell. I haven't slept. This has been the most excruciating period of my life. I doubt my presidency could survive another catastrophe like that. So, little preview of how this story's going to go. The invasion was scheduled for the 17th of April 1961. Not that it's an invasion, of course. It just so happens to be uh, people going home. Yes, sorry. 
the Cuban exiles have independently decided that on the 17th of April 1961, they will aggressively re-enter Cuba with no involvement from the US whatsoever. Eisenhower's initial plan had been for the brigade to leave from Nicaragua and land near the city of Trinidad in southern Cuba. This would put the invaders near the mountains, where there were already members of an anti-Castro group hanging around. If in doubt, guerrilla fighters are in the mountains. Yes. So either they can join the invading troops, or if everything goes pear-shaped, the invading troops can retreat into their wilderness anti-Castro area. That's what it's labelled on the maps. Yeah. Here there be anti-Castro guerrilla fighters. Prior to that landing on the 17th, 16 American aircraft are going to go and bomb Castro's main airports, destroying his air force to protect the invaders on the ground. How are they going to spin that one as not being involved? Oh, well, just you wait. Peter Kornbler, director of the Cuba Documentation Project at the US National Security Archive, later explains... The operation had to be as secret as possible and Kennedy gave the CIA three days to re-elaborate a plan that had been under preparation for a whole year. Classic. You had three months. Three days. So here's the quick change of plan. Instead of invading Trinidad in broad daylight, the men are going to land before dawn at the Bay of Pigs. Hey, they said the name of the thing. Yeah, now the Bay of Pigs is an inlet on the island's south coast roughly 100 miles away from the capital, Havana. The area's coastlines are hostile. There's a swampy region with mangroves and sharp reefs. It's the last place you'd expect someone to start an invasion. And at night. So that makes it a stroke of genius. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, no one's gonna... No one expects the Spanish Inquisition at the Bay of Pigs, etc. I mean, if they're all dressed up as the Spanish Inquisition, that would really... Throw Castro for six. <laughs> but you asked about the American B-26 bombers. Yeah, how are they going to explain away accidentally bombing all of Castro's air force? First of all, we're going to reduce them to eight planes. And we're going to disguise them as Cuban planes. <laughs> for their first pilot strike on the 15th of April... They head out and drop their bombs over the airfields of Santiago de Cuba, in the east of the country, and over Ciudad Libertad and San Antonio de Lobanos, both in Havana. They cause seven deaths, that's not really many, but only damage a few Cuban aeroplanes, some of which were already out of service. Castro's air force also managed to shoot down one of the US planes. And do they notice that they are not, in fact, Cuban planes that have gone rogue? It is very obvious to them. And also, as a fun extra bit of subterfuge, after the bombardment, another plane bearing Cuban insignia lands in Key West, Florida. Its pilot climbs out and claims to be a deserter from Castro's armed forces. Of course, he's actually been planted by the CIA to hide America's involvement to make it look like the uprising has started in Cuba. However, no one in Cuba or in America is convinced that these planes belong to Castro. While Castro does have some B-26s, his hair a different design, and reporters on the scene in Florida notice that the plane's guns haven't been fired. They're completely shiny and clean. And that it's the most picture-perfect American pilot who's <laughs> stepped out. <laughs> it's Tom Cruise as Maverick. <laughs> 
Johnny Lopez de la Cruz says, It was not a good fake. Nobody was fooled. Before long, it was global knowledge that the bombers had been American. It gets picked up in the press. And beyond that, that Kennedy has been trying to conceal that the bombers are American. Right? Yeah, that didn't work out so great for you, mate, did it? In a panic, Kennedy cancels all the other airstrikes. Not the invasion, just the initial airstrikes. Because that's totally going to convince everyone. Yeah, yeah. Yes, okay, we tried to blow up all of their planes, but we've got nothing to do with this invasion. Don't look at the guns. When Brigade 2506 land on Lager Beach, at the end of the Bay of Pigs, at 1am on 17th of April, they are practically unprotected from aerial attack. They do have a handful of B-26 aircraft with them again now, but if you recall, few of Castro's aeroplanes have been taken out. And those that had, half of them were already damaged anyway. Yeah. The landing is also far more delayed than they'd originally planned. A troop ship runs aground on a sandbar after taking fire from Cuban troops, and the battalion aboard swim for their lives, abandoning their guns and ammunition in the process. I predict this is going to be a shit show. An unexpected coral reef, which had been misidentified from aerial photos of seaweed, slows down all of the landing ships. Fucking hell. Umberto Lopez Saldana, one of the invading men, told the BBC in 2021, We started to fight too soon. This delayed the landing. Besides, our boats were all too small. Every time they hit one of the reefs, they ended up practically destroyed. Many sunk. At around six in the morning, Castro's aviation appeared. Bombs fell right next to us. Our boats shook like they were made of paper. Eduardo Zayas Pazan, a frogman who come ashore ahead of the invasion. Not a man who is half frog. Don't pull that face. I know. <laughs> I know. I know a frogman's a diver. I just think it's really cute that they keep calling them frogmen. <laughs> So the frogmen <laughs> come ashore ahead of the invasion. He remembers that when he saw Castro's own B-26 bombers flying overhead, we assumed it was one of ours. We couldn't believe it. We'd been told Castro's air force had been destroyed. So no one had passed on the message to them that the planes were still there. Well, you wouldn't want to disrupt morale, would you? No. On top of this, because Castro realised that something like this was coming... He had already mobilised 200,000 men and had militias patrolling every beach on the island. 200,000... 1,000. Hmm, <laughs> yes. He's also had 100,000 suspected dissidents rounded up within Cuba, so you know that uprising that's going to happen internally to support the invasion? Nah. And we haven't even got to the cannibalism yet. <laughs> Remember, this is a cannibalism podcast. Before long, one of Castro's patrols catches the invading men and opens fire. The element of surprise, which wasn't really there in the first place, is now completely gone. With Castro's air force still mostly intact, the invading B-26 planes are easily picked off. The supply boats carrying aircraft fuel are also lost or forced to retreat to open sea. I'd also imagine that if their boat's carrying fuel, they're going to go up quite effectively with uh, firepower. Hence why they retreat quickly. This means that the remaining planes have to fly a four-hour round trip back to the base in Nicaragua to refuel. 
and then they have less than an hour to carry out the bombings in Cuba before they have to go back to refuel again. So they're still doing bombings. They're still doing bombings, but instead of the efficient go to the ship, refuel, come back, they've got to fly all the way back and then forth again. So it's nine hours round trip round trip with only one hour bombing. Not very effective. None of this has been very effective so far. If it ain't broke, why fix it? <laughs> Within 24 hours, the invaders had lost two of six ships and half of their air fleet. The ground force were dealing with poor weather, they're working with soggy equipment, and they have insufficient ammunition because those ships were also carrying all their backup ammunition. And some of them have left their guns on the ships after they were wrecked. Very true. So Yaspazan remembers, The moment I knew we'd lost, it was the second night. I was sitting on the beach with another frogman. He turned to me and he said, Eddie, the Americans who abandoned us, we're going to die here. He turned to me and said, Ribbit. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not dignifying that with a response. <laughs> At dawn on the 19th of April, Kennedy authorised an air umbrella of six unmarked American fighter planes. Can you make up your mind? You have already been caught doing this once. Yeah. You've said you're not doing it. Now you're still doing it and authorising more. So... The pilots of the planes get confused by the change in time zones between Nicaragua and Cuba. Oh, for fuck's sake. And arrive an hour later than planned. <laughs> Castro's forces soon shoot them down. With around 114 dead and 100 wounded, no munitions, no aircraft, no escape routes, the brigade retreat into the swamps. They surrender at 5.30pm on the 19th of April. The invasion attempt had lasted less than 72 hours. By the end, Kennedy was reportedly calling his father for advice every hour. Joseph Kennedy apparently told his son, Oh hell, if that's the way you feel, give the job to Lyndon, Vice President Johnson. <laughs> some, some great paternal sympathy there. But also, when you're the elected president, you probably shouldn't be just asking your dad for advice. It's hard to say how many people were killed on the Cuban side, as in Castro's Cuban side, not the invading Cuban side. Oh, that's confusing. On Castro's side, <laughs> as the surviving invaders don't like to talk about it. Umberto Lopez Sardana, as I said, a former member of the brigade, told the BBC, The truth is that I would rather not say. We knew we were going to war, but nobody will ever tell you that we enjoyed killing people. Deep down, we were all brothers. It is true that we are all Cubans. An estimate from one of Castro's commanders, Jose Ramon Fernandez, estimated that there had been 176 deaths on their side. So, in terms of ratios, that's not a bad innings, but there were just so many more of Castro's forces. I'm going to call it a catastrophic failure in terms of a successful invasion. Yeah. Veteran Democrat Dean Etcheson told Kennedy, It was not necessary to call Price Waterhouse, an accountancy firm, to discover that 1,500 Cubans weren't as good as 25,000 Cubans. It seems to me that this was a disastrous idea. Back to Brigade 2506. The remnants of. Hoping to escape, 22 men swim out under gunfire to a small fishing boat they spotted, called the Celia. She's 20 feet long and has been floating abandoned since the fighting began. 
the escapees can still see some of the American supply ships anchored offshore, so they're confident that they can reach them and therefore safety. However, the following morning, the ships had disappeared from the horizon. Back on shore, nearly 1,200 soldiers are rounded up and imprisoned by Castro's forces. We'll come back to them later. Let's stick with the Celia men for now. These guys decide to head west to Yucatan in Mexico, more than 30 miles away by sea. None of them are experienced sailors, and there are only meagre provisions on the boat. Hungry and thirsty from combat, they drink their small amount of fresh water almost immediately, and the food doesn't last much longer. Plus, beneath the sweltering Caribbean sun, they are getting thirstier and thirstier. Men dive into the sea to cool off, some of them drink salt water, the classics. They seem to be almost speed running this. They have spent three days, well, 72 hours in grueling combat, I guess. Yeah. The swimming only exhausts them and the salt water dehydrates them, as we know. After five days, men start to die of dehydration. The first casualty is buried at sea and is a big hit to morale, as one can assume. Jose Dalsa, who was one of the leaders of Brigade 2506, later told the documentary Cannibalism Secrets Revealed, When I saw that fellow to go into the sea with open arms, I said, no, no more, I don't want to see any more. It's understandable, but also these men were prepared to go to war. I suppose the reality of death is quite different between fighting for survival and having absolutely no choice in your survival or not. Well, in the first one, they were fighting to liberate Cuba from Castro, as they saw it. Yeah. They were fighting and dying for a reason, whereas when you're just stuck at sea, you're dying for no reason, right? Yeah. Bad luck, basically. Around this time, one of the men, Alejandro del Valle Marti, age 22, reportedly dived into the ocean armed with a knife to kill a nearby shark so that he and his comrades in the boat could eat its flesh and drink its blood. But the shark swam away. I didn't think it was going to be the shark swam away. I thought it was going to be that the shark ate him. Yeah, what's even more misleading was that this sentence is on his death record and I was like, so the shark ate him? Oh no, he died of dehydration. <laughs> oh, Sorry, spoilers. For, um... And I know we've said it before and we will say it again. But do you know what could have lured a shark to you? That body. That body. I know you don't want to think about it. Probably more efficient than diving into the sea to fight it with a knife. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Don't bring a knife to a shark fight. <laughs> oh, and don't punch them on the nose. That's stupid. <laughs> Because you know what a shark's nose is really near? It's teeth? It's teeth. Yeah. Go for the gills if you're going to try and fight a shark. But do you know what? You probably don't need to. Don't. You don't, You won't win. It won't come up in your life, most likely. So don't go out searching for it. Over the next nine days, more men die of starvation and dehydration. Alejandro among them. The bodies are kept on board for one or two days as a mark of respect, then buried at sea. I don't know the exact timeline of deaths, but I can give you the details of some of the men who were recorded as dead. Ernesto Ibrahim Hernandez Cosio, age 20, he was studying to become a lawyer. 
Jesus Villachao Quintana, age 16. Manuel J. Garcia Rosales, age 43. Jorge Garcia Villata y Espinosa, age 33. Ruben Vera Ortiz, age 20. Marco Tulio Garcia Torino, age 24. Julio Caballero Gonzalez, age 22. Jose Garcia Montes y Angualo, aka Pepito, age 42. Raul Garcia Manoso Fowler, age 21. He was a baseball athlete and had been a law student. His grandfather had been the Cuban democratically elected president, Mario Garcia Manocal. So, as you will find out, we have 14 survivors from the boat. And with all these names, that adds up to more than 22. That's because the records are uncertain on some of those death records, whether they died in combat or after reaching the Celia. So those are a sort of list of names from which some of them died on the Celia, but not 100% which ones. But all of them died from the Bay of Pigs invasion. Yeah, exactly. After two weeks at sea, most of the 14 surviving men made the decision to cannibalise one of the dead. Four allegedly refused to participate, or at least refused to admit that they participated now. That's about a standard length. What was that, 14 days? Yeah, two weeks at sea, 14 days. Yeah, 10 days to 14, that's quite universal. One of the brigade leaders, Julio Pestonet, speaking to Fox News in 1998, said, I did eat some of the interior of the dead body that was extended to me. It was crazy. It was like being in hell. The survivors also drank the blood of their dead comrades. We were desperate. People were dying one after the other. Sometimes I stop and remember that I know these things and this is not a normal sentence to say. But if you're drinking the blood after they've already died, then it started to congeal. So it's not exactly adding more liquid nutrition. It's not as efficient as just killing them and drinking their blood. But maybe they didn't want to do that, Alex. I'm not judging, I'm just commenting. <laughs> Two days after eating that first body, one of the men spots a ship. At first, the others don't believe it's true. But sure enough, there we have the US cargo ship Atlanta Seaman. They are rescued 100 miles south of the mouth of the Mississippi River, which is almost 700 miles from the Yucatan where they'd been aiming. They've not really had much steering, have they, on this? No. That's a total of 16 days afloat. The survivors on the rescue ship made a pact never to admit to the cannibalism and above all, never to reveal the name of the man that they'd eaten out of respect for his family. That's fair. Clearly hasn't worked, but I respect the not saying who more than the implicit idea that cannibalism is bad, but I can see how they got there and why. Okay, let's see how we, in fact, find out about the cannibalism. Almost 40 years later, Julio Pistonet goes public to the Miami Herald on the 16th of April 1998. He wants to hold Kennedy accountable for withdrawing the air cover. I mean, it's a bit late because Kennedy's famously dead. But <laughs> I guess he wants to shine a light on his legacy. Shame his memory. Yeah. He believes that that withdrawing of air cover is what led to their misfortune. And I think that's a pretty... It's maybe not the only thing that led to their misfortune, but it's a fair assessment of a contributing factor. It would have probably been more effective to shame Kennedy with it while he was still alive, though. 
He said, we were betrayed. We were dumped over there like a bunch of trash. The remaining survivors of the 2506 Brigade, those ones back on Cuba, imprisoned, are released more than a year later in late 1962, following a public trial for treason and then intense negotiations with the US. The release is made in exchange for 53 million US dollars in medicines and food to be distributed among the Cuban people. Humberto Lopez Sardana, one of the men who'd been imprisoned, told the BBC in 2021, People say that they exchanged us for cans of baby food, but we did not feel humiliated. Because of our release, Cuba received a lot of clothing, food and medications that the government distributed there. A positive way to look at it. So in a way, they did do something to help the people of Cuba. Yeah. Sort of. Kennedy did publicly accept blame for the disastrous events at the Bay of Pigs. He kind of had to. The invasion had completely backfired. At a cocktail party in August 1961, Cuban revolutionary leader Che Guevara spoke to one of Kennedy's advisers and went on to say that he wanted to thank us very much for the invasion, that it had been a great political victory for them, enabled them to consolidate and transformed them from an aggrieved little country to an equal. I don't remember that line from Evita. <laughs> the USSR leader Khrushchev would later send nuclear weapons to Cuba to deter another US invasion of the island because, you know, Kennedy had already tried it once, why wouldn't he try it again? Hmm. Which, of course, sparked... Is it a little thing called the um, Cuban Missile Crisis? That will be the one. Where the Cold War heats up. Indeed, and the world nearly comes to nuclear destruction. Hooray! Although the US involvement in the invasion and the cannibalism aboard the Celia have since become public knowledge, I mean, the US involvement was pretty public knowledge at the time, it just took them a while to officially declassify that. To this day, the survivors have still never revealed the name of the man who'd been eaten. Good for them. As Jose Dalza puts it, what is not known and will never be known is who was the man whose body nourished us. It was only one, but his name will never be spoken. Having said good for them, I'm torn. I know, we're biased, but that is sort of what an amazing gift. This one man saved all of us, and that could in itself be a comfort to his family. But also I can see that that fucks with your head a bit, and they don't want to. But they could stop going on about how they're not going to say who it was. <laughs> So it sounds like a bit like taunting. Yeah. <laughs> well, you say that it's public knowledge. Before doing the preliminary research, I didn't know there had been Bay of Pig survival cannibalism. Okay. Public but not widely publicised knowledge. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to today's episode on the Bay of Pigs. Go on, honestly, did any of you know that the Bay of Pigs invasion ended in survival cannibalism? I did. You don't count. <laughs> Join us next time for a choose-your-own-adventure tale of shipwreck and mutiny. Casting Lots podcast can be found on Twitter, 
Instagram and Tumblr as at Casting Lots Pod and on Facebook as Casting Lots Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate, review and share to bring more people to the table. Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast, is research written and recorded by Alex and Carmela, with post-production and editing also by Carmela and Alex. Art and logo design by Riley, at Tallest Friend on Twitter and Instagram, with audio and music by Daniel Wackett. Daniel Wackett on SoundCloud and at DSWack on Twitter. Casting Lots is part of the Morbid Audio Podcast Network. Search hashtag Morbid Audio on Twitter and the network's music is provided by Michaela Moody. Michaela Moody 1 on Bandcamp. Morbid Audio Podcast Network. Well, that wasn't in We Didn't Start the Fire. Bay of Pigs, cannibalism. <laughs> There we go.